Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B-Squared and the host of the Sendcast. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the podcast. The aim of the Sendcast is really simple. We want to reach lots of people and help us all learn more about special educational needs and disability. In this episode, we'll be discussing empathy and reminding everyone that empathy is free. My guest is Amanda Sokel, an advocate and neurodiversity trainer. And as a parent of a child with SEN, Amanda equipped herself with the knowledge of the law to successfully secure the provision her son needed. And she now uses her knowledge and experience to support others. The Sendcast is created produced by us here at B-Squared. We help schools to show lots of progress for pupils with SEND, however small that is. And we help schools to show that progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress, struggling to identify where a pupil is, not sure about the engagement model or the pre-key stage standards, we can help. But did you know you can use B-Squared's assessment software for more than just your pupils with SEND? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me and I will take you through how our software can help you. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing empathy, the ability to understand and share the feelings of another person. My guest is Amanda Sokel, an advocate and neurodiversity trainer. As a parent of a child with SEN, Amanda has equipped herself with the knowledge of the law so she can successfully secure the provision her son needed. She now uses her knowledge and experience to support parents and schools through her company, Navigating Neurodiversity. Welcome to show, Amanda. Good to be here. Thank you. I don't think I came across the term empathy until well into my 20s and then realized shortly after that everyone else has different levels of empathy and different ways of showing empathy. As always, let's start with a discussion about what empathy is. Empathy is the ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and to understand how they f- might be feeling in a given situation. Yeah, that's a... It's a really good one. And I never, if someone had told me that at school, it could have might have helped me a bit more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I say, I never came across that term empathy or understood at all what it meant. And I think we have this guy, like, well, just, you're not very empathetic. And I'm like, what's that? And I Googled it. I went, oh, oh, okay. And then I had a conversation with someone in the office. How are you? He goes, what's that? And he goes, no, I'm not. And he, he completely cannot put himself in other people's yeah. shoes. No. Whereas I, if I know someone, I'm very empathetic to that person. Mm-hmm. But if I don't know that person, mm-hmm. I don't really have huge amounts of empathy. So if you ask me to feel like empathy for the starving children of Ethiopia, I don't, I personally cannot go, oh, that must no. be really, I, I cannot, I don't understand enough to feel. No. And I think, I think actually you've hit the crux of the problem with empathy. So although we're talking about empathy, I think empathy is overrated. The problem with empathy is that some people find it really easy 
other people find it really difficult. And for many people, unless they have personally experienced what it is you're going through, they can't be empathetic because they just can't put themselves in that situation. So it's really easy for me to be empathetic with parents that I work with because I've lived their shoes. I've walked that journey myself. And yet we expect teachers to be empathetic with parents and children who are on that special educational needs journey. And if they haven't got a child or a nephew or a niece or a relative that has special educational needs and haven't seen that firsthand, it might be quite difficult for them to be empathetic. Definitely. I, I think I was trying to work out when it was. I think I became a dad when I was 27. And it was around this time I learned about empathy, I think. And it was, there are things that would have no connection yet, yeah? no emotional connection to me. And then once you have your child and they're the love of your life and life is amazing and you love them and you understand how much that child means to you. When I then watch a video on YouTube of an American soldier coming home and surprising their child or their wife and that child jumping on them, I get that now, yeah? Now I'm a parent and I work away and I miss my kids. I can understand, although I haven't met you, I understand the situation you're in. I've been away for a week, let alone six months in a war. I get that. And the other one is when Tangled came out, good old Disney film, there's a bit at the end where she reunites with her parents. If I watch the whole film, every time I cry, because I literally go, imagine not seeing my children for 16 years, imagine missing out on all of those things that I've seen my, imagine knowing none of that and just meeting her at 16 and missing out on all of that. And it makes me upset. So by me, as you said, having an experience, having that connection helps me understand that person's point of view. But if I haven't got, that personal connection, if I've not been that, down that road, if I've not had those situations, I can imagine how you feel. Well, no, you can't. <laughs> That's no. what I've learned about empathy. No, and there are some people who are empaths who can feel that. And for many people, it, it doesn't work. So the reason I think this is important to understand is that I did a piece of work several years ago now where I was looking at What are the things that need to be in place for any child, let alone a child with special educational needs, to be successful in a school school system? And I came up with what I cleverly thought were this model with three E's. I was really delighted that I ended up with these three words that began with E. And the first one was empathy. And the first one was we, we need teachers to have empathy for the struggles our children have when they're learning. We need them to have um, empathy for the parents. We need parents to have empathy for the teachers and the environment that they're limited by. And our children need to have empathy for, for themselves. They need to be kind to themselves. So that was one of the E's. And then the next one was expertise. So we we as parents and teachers need to have expertise about the way children learn, the difficulties they might have, the, the the support they might need when they're having difficulties and so on. And the third one was environment, which is about the system that you're learning in and about the physical environment that you're learning in. And I was really proud of my 3E model 
And then I started digging down deeper and deeper and deeper into empathy in particular. And I discovered that the empathy is flawed for exactly the reason that you've just described. And there's been studies on this, which I won't go into, but the problem, the problem with this model is empathy is the wrong word. And there's lots of work going on in education talking about empathy at the moment. And I think the word we need is compassion. So it completely messes up my three E's, but that doesn't matter (laughs) because compassion is, it is empathy, but it's something that we can all do. You can be compassion. You can show compassion towards somebody without having had to experience what they're experiencing. And the interesting thing, if you go into it in a lot of detail, is that you can train yourself to be more compassionate. You cannot train yourself to be more empathetic. Empath- empathy comes with experience. Yes. You have to experience things to get the empathy. So becoming a parent, I got to level two of empathy. <laughs> It's it's those sorts of things. As soon as your child gets diagnosed with SCN, you go up to level 33. You're way up there on the empathy because as soon as you meet another child, you go, my child's just been diagnosed. You're starting to have flashbacks of your entire journey and you get there. It's, it's like when you say, oh, yeah, how old is your baby? And they go, two weeks old. You're going, oh. <laughs> Life's ooh. tough right now. <laughs> it, that's the empathy, yeah. You've been there. You experience it. You look at them. You look at why they're tired and you go, yeah, yeah, don't it. it's fine. Like We get this. That's the kind of empathy is you've walked it, you've done it, you've got some experience, or you've had a similar experience. might be the same, but you've had similar experiences. And, yeah, that is empathy. Yeah, it is compassion. Compassion it is because you cannot imagine what it's like. No, no. And we we can't expect all of our teachers in all of our schools to have experienced everything that all of their students and their families have experienced in order to be sufficiently empathetic. So let's stop trying. Let's talk about compassion and let's talk about why that's important. If you want to think of it as empathy, that's fine. But the point is you don't have to experience things to be able to demonstrate compassion towards the challenges that your students and their families might be experiencing. Definitely. I'm someone who likes to understand. So if you're in a situation, I'm like, well, how do you get there? And I, I think so. And it's, it's that understanding. Then I sit there and I can then understand and I, I might be empathetic. But without that understanding, without that knowledge and experience, I can still be compassionate to that person. Yeah, for sure. And compassion is so important because when we are able to show compassion, and we combine it with expertise or a desire to increase our expertise, two things happen. One is we can be much more accepting of each of each other and ourselves, and we can ensure that growth happens. And one of the difficulties teachers have is they go to, through teacher training, they come out, they do several years of practice, And they go, in many cases, I've nailed it. I'm a teacher. I'm a good teacher. And sometimes I've been in schools where there's been a growth mindset um, 
philosophy where the children are being encouraged to have a growth mindset and yet the staff don't seem to have one. And I think when you understand the importance of compassion and and you're in a situation for any of us, teachers, parents, professionals, where you don't feel that you really know enough about this topic, that compassion leads you to want to go and learn about it and it leads you to want to try and help and it leads you to want to find a solution. If that compassion is missing, that's when the challenges start. I think it's interesting is that growth mindset. It's I'm going to tell you, people. You put a circle around the thing you want to work on. Yeah. So in, in in the school, you've got the children, you've got the staff, you've got teachers and senior leaders, and generally, we, you look at the children. But a lot of time, the circle needs to be much bigger because you can't expect your children to have a growth mindset if your teachers aren't modelling it. And you can't expect your teachers to do it unless the senior leaders. And so often, I think is when you're trying to make a change, you're looking, and it's it's almost like you're on the edge of a ball ring looking down at everyone in there going, we need to improve all of that. But you yourself are often on the outside. Yes. You need to be in there. Yes. And that's, I think people, as a parent, I've done the same thing. I've sat there and gone, it's like you take your kids to the beach. You're like, we're at the beach, go play. <laughs> I'm not, I'm lying here. Why aren't you not playing? <laughs> no, I'm lying here, you play. And then it finally dawned on me. I, I don't I- go to the beach to lie down. I'm still entertaining my children and I need to be involved. And that is my job. But it took me a couple of failed events going to the beach to me to sit there and go, I need to show them how to play at the beach. I need to be there. They want to share things with me. I share things because what are they interested in? How do they know about rock pools unless someone's taking them through it? And exactly. So, yeah, I had that thing of realizing you, right, you two go play. Yeah. No, I'm sitting here and no, yeah, I've now learned that doesn't happen. No, well, no. It does now because they're much older, so I'm now I can sit there and do nothing. <laughs> but it is, it's that realisation of you looking at them, but often completely take yourself out of that circle. Yes, yes. And one of the frustrating things is that many children who find themselves with emotional-based school avoidance or unable to attend a particular school because relationships are broken down and need to move schools with all the disruption that that creates, it's because, for whatever reason, some, not all or often, but some of the staff and sufficient of the staff in that school haven't taken the time to show compassion and really understand a child's underlying needs. And we have to remember, and we all know this, I'm sure, that every piece of behaviour that we see is a child trying to communicate that something is not well in their world. And if we don't remember that we have to dig down through the layers of the onion to find what it is that's not right, we'll never fix the behaviour, we'll never like that child, there'll always be a frustration, and that's where compassion comes in. Definitely. And I think that whole all behaviours communication is still true. Generally, by the time we get to adults, we've learned to not be disruptive and learn better ways. But you, you still, when you're at home and your other half annoys you, you turn petty. You do things that you could have done in a much better way, but you leave drawers open in the kitchen because they did something else. You, you just do whatever they did. You, you do, do something to get them back. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> do you do you know are you one of those angelic people who don't do that? Sure. I try not to. I really do try not to, but every so often I will just do something to wind my wife up. And I shouldn't, and I know I shouldn't, but every so often it still comes out. And it is me communicating, you didn't do something I liked. This is my retaliation. I think I probably do it a different way. I don't, I would never, <laughs> I would never deliberately do something like that. But what I, if I'm frustrated or annoyed, I say things I wish I, I regret later. So I, ah. so it, it manifests in a different way. I, I've learned not to say things because you can't take those back. Mm. But leaving the toilet seat up, leave put, putting things on the stairs that she should have taken up, that she moans at me for not taking other things up, those sorts of really childish, <laughs> which just winds them up. I could have dealt with in a better way. First of all, I could have just taken my stuff up and not made it an issue in the first place. But it winds you up. And we do this as adults. But children, they've got so much more going on. And they also haven't really got the idea of, if you do it this way, it really makes a difference. And you'll see that over the next three years. No, right. you haven't had that experience yet. You haven't thrown friendships away. You haven't ruined relationships. You haven't done things yet and learnt what happens because of that. So we do have to really accept that that behaviour is them trying to communicate something. They're just often trying a way out, which works for them in that moment because no one's given them an opportunity to do it a different way no no and it's really sad because in every case I've ever seen where you have a child who is rubbing stuff up the wrong way is constantly um, getting detentions or behavior points or whatever the system the school is using there are typically one or two members of staff that simply don't have that challenge for whom that student has a great relationship behaves really well in the lessons and does a great job and it's such a missed opportunity because those teachers have worked out what it is and how to relate to that student And if they were able to share that knowledge with all the other teachers that that student comes into contact with, then lots of lots of them would have a better relationship and would know how to deal with certain things and so on. And and I think the the problem is that we all forget compassion. We all get het up in our self-righteous and we all do it. Our self-righteous, I'm right and they're wrong. Yep. And. We have to find ways to go, hang on a minute. There's two people here. There are two people responsible for this relationship. What can I do to, for my part? I've I've read this amazing book recently. I can't remember the title. and It's really going to annoy me. However, one of the things he said was every relationship that breaks down, what happens is, we all try and apportion 100% of the blame between the two people. So it's 80% you and 20% me, or it's 70% you and 30% me. You're always at fault. And what he said was, we are both 100% responsible for this relationship. And when you take 100% of the responsibility for a problem in a relationship, you're invested in fixing it. And that's what compassion 
is when you see it in a school environment compassion to accept that you're part of the problem with the relationship and you're going to do something about it i always remember my mum telling me it takes two people to argue it does and it is exactly that it is you are they said something you haven't liked and you can either go ignore it walk away or respond they were 100% fault for what you said and as soon as you say that you're 100% fault for what you said yeah you could have walked away you both had options you both had choices and that's the thing is if you don't say something back if you just there's not an argument and it's those sorts of things but what i find interesting is as you as you grow up you get lots of beliefs in your head of why the way the world is how i need to act to get the outcomes i want and things and it's all shaped by your experiences i think when you're a teacher and you and that teacher who really makes a difference for that child. It's not like they will make a difference for that one child and that teacher. Generally, that teacher makes a difference for lots of children because they are more compassionate. They're going, yeah, I want you to do that. But if I'm slightly flexible, although you don't do what I want, you still get what the ultimate thing I'm aiming for done. Yes, I might not have silence in my classroom, but you all get the work done and you enjoy it and you're passionate and you engage. So does it have to be quiet? Whereas another teacher has their experiences and you can't just take one thing from that teacher and drop it in there. There's 150 different things that teacher's doing to that teacher. And it's trying to work out what that is, is very, very hard. And that's the thing. It can't just be, you need to be more compassionate because that person will feel they're compassionate. There's a whole, probably a whole compassionate test you can do and things like that. Ability to be empathetic and compassionate and put yourself in all that. But why are they doing things the way they are? What is their experience? What have they gone through? And you might find out that actually that works because of other factors which now aren't present. And it's just, it gets really complicated on what works and what doesn't. But if you start from this compassionate, which to me means flexible. Mm -hmm. Compassionate means flexible. Opposite of compassionate. I have no idea. Incompassionate, I don't know. No idea. (laughs) Is rigid. Yes. Yeah. And we talk about reasonable adjustments. Yeah. That's all in that compassionate, that flexible zone. That's what we need to be. And one thing I find is if I'm going into a conversation, if I'm going to something, I'm going, what is the end goal? What is the end goal I'm trying to achieve about this conversation? And I always remember that. And I will say what I need to, to get the end goal. Mm -hmm. I might concede things. I might admit I was was wrong. I might do all of these things to get to that end goal, which to me is a better outcome for everyone involved. And I might say, yeah, it was me. I shouldn't have done that. I'll take that. Because ultimately, if I give a bit, they might give a bit. Whereas you can't expect the other person to give a bit first. You've got to give a bit. You've got to be that person modeling, being that flexible and accepting. Yes. And you'll hopefully get there. Yes. And I think it's the same when working with your children. They are who they are and you are who you are. But if you show some flexibility and they recognize that, then they are more likely to be slightly more flexible for you. For sure. My husband tells a great story about when he was a a project manager, senior project manager, working on the underground. And he had a load of engineers and guys who would go out and dig holes and work at weekends and all the rest of it and he operated a very flexible working environment where if they 
needed a bit of time off for something, provided the job got done, it wasn't this strict nine to five. And he, it was it was very, very much, you know, you help me and I'll help you. And sadly, in some schools, that culture doesn't exist. It's very, there's a very, rigid is a great word, a very yes. rigid attitude to certain things. And one of the one of the cohorts that particularly struggle with that, I think, are those students that have ADHD, who have impulses that they simply cannot control. And they're deemed to be rude or they're deemed to be insolent or they're deemed to just flout the rules all the time. And they can't control that because of their the way their brain's wired. And yet they they will constantly be knocking up against teachers who don't understand ADHD and haven't invested the time to understand it. And 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 that's where whether you call it empathy or whether you call it compassion, ha- having that desire to learn and desire to find out what makes this student tick and what is it that they struggle with and what's likely to happen and how can I deal with that can be the breakdown, literally be the breakdown of a school place. Definitely. It's interesting you talk about the world of work. I My first job was in Ikea in Croydon. And I spent six very happy, mostly happy years there. And that was a really nice place. It was very much you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Everyone wore the same uniform. So whether you were the uh, trolley boy or the store manager, there was no difference in a lineup. Yeah, we all were looked the same, dressed the same. We talked to each other the same. It was really good. And it was a really nice environment. And I learned a lot from being in that environment. But in, in, the, in, in jobs, we are basically doing something for our employer. Yeah, we're digging a hole. I'm picking furniture. I'm pushing, putting trolleys on a sofa and pushing it out, and you're getting your sofa as a customer. We are doing something for the employer, for the customer, and we are paid for that. What I was thinking about as you were talking, I was going, it's a very different thing in school because the children are the product, the customer, and everything, and yet the teacher's are the ones being paid to make that product thing better. So it's a very different mm. thing that actually where I am trying to make the customer happy and I'm paid to do that and it, it makes the company more is in reality, as a teacher, I'm paid to make the children happy and learn. Because for them to learn, they need to be confident and happier and things like that. And they'll be more successful in life. And success in life isn't just qualifications. It's lots of things. And that's my job as a teacher is if I'm enjoying, I'm employed to do that, it is uh, successful, confident children is what I'm trying to create. And I think that gets forgotten. Oh, absolutely. Well, it is. It's very difficult, isn't it, in our current education system, which is so assessment yes. focused. I've, I've, I've got friends and a, a son who's going through GCSEs at the moment and everybody's saying the same thing. They've, they've, taken the love of learning out of education and it's all about facts and figures and passing tests and exams and it's it must be impossible to be particularly in secondary school now teaching students where you've got that on the one hand 
and then you know a desire to create a love of learning and creativity and confidence and all of those other amazing skills that our schools are designed or should be helping to prepare children with because there's a conflict there um and so i get it it's it's not it's not easy by any stretch of the imagination however when we can really get to know individual students and work out what it is that helps them to be the best they can be while they're at school, whatever that might look like, our lives will ultimately be easier. I, I think secondary school is not a great place and it's not the teacher's fault. As you said, it's the assessment, it's things like that. I know someone who I bumped into last week and last week was, I think, the beginning of GCSEs with a geography paper I don't know. But he teaches history for year 11s. He says, I've only just finished teaching new stuff. And I said, right, can I just be clarify on this? Are you literally flying through the content, teaching them how to answer the questions and nothing more? He went, yes, that's all I've done for two years. So not only is is the love of learning has gone. Totally. The enjoyment of a subject. So my daughter's in year 12 and and she had no idea what options to choose. Apart from it generally came down to which teachers she didn't like. And then we got to A level. She really didn't have a clue. Mm. She did not have a clue. And she never got excited about anything at school. She just got stressed by things at school. And we looked at it and we 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 chose what, what is actually quite a, a strange mix. It's computing, graphic design, and geography. Because she likes art but she's quite logical. She did computing, but she also seemed to like geography. And I was thinking, you like that and it's useful. Getting into her A-levels, she now knows what she loves. She's found her love of graphic design and she shares her work with us. And she came down the other day going, this is what I'm doing. And the other one is she loves geography and she's getting really excited about geography. But none of that showed in mm-hmm. secondary. So the love of learning for God, what I want to be when I'm older is just not there because you're just learning how to answer 10 mark questions. And it's very rigid. It really has to change. And I'm hoping chat GPT and various other things coming along is really going to disrupt education and make things better. Cause we don't in the modern world, we don't do what you do at secondary school. We do projects. All I do in my adult life is projects. I do a project called a podcast. I do a project called this. Every episode is a pod, is a project where there are various stages I go through. And yes, I repeat that project, but it's very thing. I don't do each day an hour of English and an hour of math and an hour of geography and an hour of history. I do these projects and I do whatever is required for that project. And I have to stuck in and I have to problem solve. And I don't do problem solve. I can, I can rant for ages. Let's stop me ranting. <laughs> Let's stop me ranting. I've just caught myself. I need to stop. But I think that empathy isn't there higher up, out above the schools. It's just not there, the understanding of what children need and what the um, employment industry need from school and children. Oh, no, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, I, I talked earlier about within, within the education system, you know, having empathy for, for each other, parents having empathy for teachers, teachers having empathy for children and parents and children having empathy for themselves. And absolutely, if you if you were to take that up a level, you you need school leaders to have empathy for all of those parties. You need 
local authorities to have empathy. You need governments to have empathy. And I think I think that's lost. I think the compassion for children. I mean, the 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 language and conversation coming out of the pandemic about we've got these children need to catch up and catch up budgets and catch up funding and all of that kind of stuff. The the lack of compassion for what those children have experienced and the it's it's staggering. The, the, The fact that because they're back in school now, that those two years we can just catch up is is quite frankly insulting to child development it's not about academic learning it's about developing as a human being and schools and voluntary groups the scouting and so on are seeing whole cohorts of children that are ill-equipped for life at the at the age that they should be they are immature their social skills are lacking it's got nothing to do with whether they can pass a maths GCSE. And that's that's the lack of compassion that we have did, systemic in our um, government. Did you look at into you know, that money for tutoring? Mm. Yes, we're behind. We need to do tutoring. I look, mm. looked into it. And loads of got it there. We got to the point where we're going, it's English and maths. Mm. It's like, so if your child is really struggling at school because of the school doesn't really work for them. And yeah, that's the thing is, they're struggling in maths, so it must be maths is a problem. No, no. There's a load of things before we get to maths is the problem, and that's what we need to work on. That's what we need to work at. How do we do this? And generally that is being social and team building and that sort of stuff, conversations, discussion, all those sorts of things, project, but that's what we need. That is the sort of thing that two children or three children in a group need to get into an argument and work out who's doing what in a group and learn not to punch each other, not even say the rude things, but how do we do this properly without having to turn out up there? Oh, it's, absolutely. That's what we need. We don't need, let's do even more maths because you're bad at maths and you spent a whole year doing maths and you've really struggled in maths and you've not engaged in maths. Well, let's do a whole summer of maths. No. There's, um, there's an interesting school of thought which talks about connection before content. And... There was a really interesting study where two two groups of students with teachers were on a two-week project-based activity. And one of the teachers got straight in and it was all about, let's get to the end game. The other one spent the first three days of this two weeks on building connections between the students. They didn't even start the curriculum. The group by by one week in, the group that had started with connection were already ahead of the group that hadn't, despite having spent more than half of the week not on the task. And the group that hadn't done any of that connection were sabotaging each other, fighting with each other, and completely out of control. And halfway through the project, the two teachers conferred, spoke to each other. I think they might have even swapped groups. I can't remember. But they then realised what this other, what the connection bit was missing and then went back and put that in place and were able to successfully complete the project. And that's the bit that is missing, 
it's it's building that connection between the students, between the teachers, to build all of those skills that you just described, that this whole rhetoric of catch up, catch up, catch up, academic success, academic success is missing. That thing, one, the first example, the connections, that's where we should be. Yeah, we should be looking at what the strengths are and celebrating those, supporting where they're not strong, doing all of that and making people who actually love learning. The other one is the current education system, which is just to convey about coming out with GCSEs. And the GCSEs, my daughter's got her GCSEs. I would say it was completely wasted five years of her life. She has her GCSEs. She's got her five in English and maths. I'm really happy. But she did not enjoy those five years. She didn't even work hard, I would say. And she didn't get excited by a single thing she did, but she was generally annoyed by the people around her. She loved COVID learning because she didn't have to put up with the idiots, as she put it. So my other daughter is struggling as well. Mm. Yet if they work together and they saw the strengths in each other, rather than sabotaging, which teenage girls love doing, they would be better together. And if you're better together... I bet you, as you said, if the children are sabotaging and doing all of that, there's probably going to be a lot of control, a lot of input ongoing from that teacher to maintain relationships. Absolutely. Yes, it becomes a self-satisfying exercise. If you can build those skills, they manage themselves and you're not the one having to constantly deal with the challenges. And I remember we watched Super Nanny when we were thinking of children in in the early years. And the one few bits I always remember is, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And the one I always stuck in my head is going around the supermarket. And you still see a parent with their child screaming their head off in that thing and they're half ignoring, trying to get down that supermarket as quickly as possible. And they hate it every week. And yeah, we've all seen them. We've been there as well because you're in a rush that one time. What I've learned is generally don't put them in the, unless they're tired and really young and sleeping, but get help them to write a shopping list if they can. Or give them your shopping list to hold and memorise it in your head or have a second copy on your phone or whatever. But ask them, right, you go get a cucumber. As soon as they're involved and they have a purpose, it's not stressful. Um, generally, if you run around the supermarket, you've generally got an hour to recover afterwards at home with a strong coffee or something stronger. Whereas by me doing that, writing that shopping list beforehand, including my child, it might have taken me an extra 20 minutes. But when we got home, life was good. And if you have a child for whom the supermarket is sensory onslaught, then being able to run around actually helps mitigate some of that. Yes. And it is, it's just, it's just fascinating, this thing of, I've got to get on with this. And it's like, I remember as a supervisor at Ikea who said, I'm not here to be liked, I'm here to get the job done. <laughs> and my word of wisdom at 18 just referred, if I like you, I'll do more work for you. And he came back the next day and he didn't say anything to me, but he changed. Wow. And I've not worked with him now for 20 years, but we're still friends on Facebook. And he's a really nice man. And he just sat there and obviously it hit him. Mm. And he went, yeah, I don't have to be horrible. Mm. We are in this together. Yeah. And he changed. And And I really respected him. And there are things where I should have done things, but he gave me that flexibility and I called him a rather rude word one day when I was in a really bad mood. I realised I shouldn't. I waited to be reported. Nothing happened. And I went and apologised to him. 
I shouldn't have done what he did. But again, going back to that, that was 100% my fault. If he had reported me, it was still all my fault, but he didn't. And it was a lot of respect and basically meant that I would do anything he asked for because he showed me that flexibility. Yeah. My, my son talks about one of his favourite hockey coaches who might not have been the best hockey coach, but the relationship he had with those players, as, as my son described, he said they would have given it their all on the pitch for him because, because they wanted to do a good job for him. And that's what that's ideally where we all want to get, isn't it? That we have, we have a, a group of students or children um, in our families who want to do the right thing. And I think most children want to do the right thing. And some yes. children struggle with that. Some children don't have, at the age of 13, the emotional and physical development of a 13-year-old. They're still a 10-year-old in that respect. And therefore, they don't do the right thing. And they don't set out to do the wrong thing. And that's the bit that some some of us, parents, teachers, whoever, often forget. Yep. And I would say is if someone has an immature sense of humour, you can't tell them to grow up or be more mature. <laughs> they just find it funny. And my daughter is in that zone right now, and I still find it funny. And my wife is telling her off. I'm just trying to keep a straight face and look the other way because I'm finding it very funny. And that's the thing. It's, you can't, there's nothing I can do to change her. No. She is finding it funny. No. All we can do in a supportive way is try and show her, yes, you can do that in front of me. Don't do it in front of your mother and definitely don't do that in school. Yeah, if it's like a thing. If it's an itch, if she finds it funny, she needs to tell someone. Of course. Fine, yeah. tell me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll find it funny. But your mum won't. Your mum is a teacher, so she'll go, oh, I can't do that because she'll think you're doing it in school. So we, So it is that supportive way of going, well, she finds it funny. I, I, nothing I can do will change that. No. And it's understanding the development journey that individual children are on. Our youngest son, I would say, is probably two to three years and always has been two to three years developmentally behind his peers. Not academically, but developmentally. And things that I would expect a 15-year-old boy to do, he's not doing. He's just about managed to master some of the things you'd expect a 13- or a 14-year-old boy to do. So we have to understand that not every child grows and develops on a linear path and and, and compensate for that and 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 understand that and be compassionate about that. And also our expectations need to think about what our expectations based on. My mum was from an older generation. Children should be seen, not heard that era, yeah? And she'll look at me, and I'm in my 30s, and she'll look at me and go, when are you going to grow up? <laughs> and I look at her going, I pay my bills, I have a job, my children are quite happy and doing well. What is it I'm doing wrong? And she said, you need to grow up. And I'm going, what do you mean? I think she meant I just had to be more boring. I don't know. But it is what, what that's the thing is what is your expectation of that child? There are certain things. And if you just spend your life telling your child they're wrong, mm. they're going to start believing it. Mm. If you accept your child for who they are, but just go, that is really good, but don't do that in that environment. You'll get it will be. Yes. You've got to go, look, 
that's great. But and if we can tweak it a bit and get rid of some of that, you, there's something in there. Yes. You obviously have a quick mind. You're seeing things. You're reacting to things. That's great. Let's keep that bit. Let's get rid of the, some of the humour. But how can we do – it's not just saying don't do that no. or that's wrong no. or that's immature or – that's... Absolutely. I great example. We were we were out for a, in in town on Saturday, and we stopped for a coffee right next to where the cricket ground is, in this little coffee shop. And these two young lads, who I I don't know, year six, year seven probably, were hitting. They had a plastic cricket ball, bat and a ball, and they were knocking about. And the cafe owner came out to them and said, "You can't do that here because I, you might hit the customers." Well, they were at least 20 feet away from the nearest customers. There were only two tables of customers at the time. And all she needed to do was say, how about changing your direction? Why don't you do it 90 degrees change? Do it that way rather than where you're doing it. And then the ball won't hit the customers. And it was just it was just like, don't do that. I was, I, my heart broke for them. These two lads who are uncharacteristically in this day and age out doing some sport knocking about in the sunshine not stuck at home in front of a computer and all all this woman could say was don't, don't. do it but that's the thing is if you tell a child not to not to that part of the will die those oh, two boys absolutely. might now not going but if you go look if you just touch take a look at the way you're batting yeah if you bowl it this way it's gonna go that way hit it, it's gonna go that way won't come this way yeah just when you just it just think about that they might then go, okay. They might go, next time they do it, it just enters into their mind. They've learned yeah, Just think something. about this. They've learned They have learned. <laughs> and that is, it is, it comes back to that compassion. It is remembering what it was like at that age for you. And you, you're, not, you're not understanding the world. You're not sitting there going, well, why is that person saying no? They're just a mean old adult. They had their reason, but you're going, but we're not going to. But they can see that. With all your intentions, it might, but you can don't have to go full guns in. Don't do that. It's just okay. How can you do that, but it not impact us? Yes, yes, absolutely. It is. Everyone does things their own way, and even at B squared, is we all work our own way, which works for us. And what I've learned is, I like things done a certain way, not in a horrible way, but it's what works for me. But somebody I work with is the complete opposite for them. So I don't share it when it's fresh in my mind and I want them to read it. They will read it when they need to read it. Because if they read it beforehand, it means they're not focusing on something else. And so we've got this thing that they will go, right, where's this? And I go, it's here. And then I'll take them through it. And that's when they'll engage. They'll engage when they need it, not when I need them or I think they should. And it's just... It's and I know we've got thirty kids and they're all going to be different, but you generally a few things will work for everyone. You're not making thirty completely different, no. really weird rules. No. It's just a little bit of flexibility. What makes a big difference to all of those children? Absolutely, and you know we have an anxiety epidemic at the moment. Not, whatever the cause, the fact is indisputable. And anxiety comes from a fear of not knowing what to expect, 
a fear of getting things wrong, a fear of being humiliated, all of those things. If we want to reduce anxiety, we've got to tackle the root cause. What is it that is causing this anxiety? We need to get, it's like that layers of an onion. We have to get below the anxiety to the underlying issues. We have to have enough compassion to spend the time to work out what it is so that we can fix that. And it's it's often so simple. In in my child, in my son's world, anxiety comes from fear of the unknown. If when he was little, if we wanted to go on holiday, the only way we could have a successful holiday is if we went on the internet beforehand and showed pictures of where we were yep. going because he needed to visualize it. You can talk to him till you're blue in the face unless you show him a picture. He just doesn't get it. We understood that quite early on that if we were going for a short break, premiere in hotels because the purple moon didn't matter that that one was in Manchester and one was in Norfolk. As far as he was concerned, it was the same hotel. As long as we stayed at the purple moon hotel, we were good. And and it's it's that's the bit that sometimes is missing that we we don't stop and show compassion for what is it that's causing this anxiety what can I do to change my practice that will just make that little little difference that's big enough to overcome the anxiety the student is facing so both my daughters hate being picked on in class asked to put anything like that they hate it they hate the idea they might get the question wrong or you might ask me the thing. And in every parent's evening, so for my daughter's in year 12 now, so for five parents' evenings with all those teachers and for my other daughter, year nine, and all those parents, all those teachers, only one person said something which actually made any sense, which was, and this was great, it was, if you know the answer, stick your hand up because that way I've, I've covered you and I won't ask you if you don't know the answer. So as soon as you know an answer, if you stick your hand up, and I sat there, and she and that made a difference. She went, actually, that makes sense. Actually, out of everything else, is is just stick your hand up, yeah, or just do this. It's like no, because you've got to stick your hand up in front of everyone, and your voice might go ah, when you're trying to say whatever it is. And she says that people's voices cracks, and everyone laughs at them. So that just makes the whole teenage thing of sticking your hand up and answering a question horrible. Then you're not even going to get, if you're stuck, you're not going to know how to ask because you're not going to want everyone to know you don't know. And I really feel that we do have technology in schools. And I've met, somebody was talking about this like eight years ago and it was phenomenal. And it was for, I can't remember if it's secondary school or college, but basically every day he used to put up a different random hashtag on the board. Mm-hmm. And if you have a question, you could just tweet that hashtag. Yeah. And though it's, no one would know who you are. And he, so he basically had a way that people could raise a concern or a question or ask something, which I don't understand, in a way which was no one knew. Mm. And we have teams now in schools. We have emails. Everyone can email. Is, why can't we do that? Yeah? Oh. We have red cards and green cards on desks, which draws attention. But if I could just do something on my phone, and I do think phones are good, teach them how to use it. Don't just say no, like the cricket, teach them how to do it well. They can literally go, I'm struggling with this, but don't come to my desk because I don't want anyone to know. Yeah? Absolutely. And there is a way you can support that child. And if you're then going to build their confidence in that subject by actually going, well, what do you think is? And then tell me and I'll tell you 
i.e. give me your understanding and then I'll help you rather than I'll just give you can build their confidence up. And I think that's why for some students, COVID was just amazing because they were, for those that were engaging in live lessons over the internet, they were able to send private chats to the teacher to say, I don't get this. And nobody would know. I've looked at online schools before where they have the most amazing platforms where children can do exactly that they can communicate with the teacher in secret so that nobody knows that they don't understand something and we've we've what we need to do is find that hybrid yes bring that into the classroom in and the way you describe I absolutely agree with you I had um another similar experience I was involved in a business school that ran quarterly conferences for three days and I was on the distance program. And so on the distance program, we didn't go to Australia or wherever the conference was. We joined via um, a video feed and we used Discord to talk to each other. And so when, yeah. a, when a presenter was presenting, our little group had a back channel on Discord where we could talk or whatever. Then COVID hit and, of course, everybody's suddenly a distance participant <laughs> and we're all on Zoom and we're all talking and all the rest of it. And and then they started to bring back in-person events. And I said to one of the organisers, I said, one of the things that I've always loved about being a distance participant is the ability to talk to other people while the speaker's talking. And it, it adds to the content and you can't do that in the room. But why can't you? Why couldn't everybody in the room have a, a Discord app open and we could all talk to each other about what the speaker's saying, just the same way as we do on Zoom. And he's like, oh, my goodness, what an incredible idea. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just taking that technology and saying, just because we're not remote doesn't mean we can't use it. We had, um, so we, we run online conferences and we started the year before COVID. And exactly that, they, teachers actually, like, they could put a question in and someone go, oh, it's not just me who has this issue. And they could talk to each other. And then over COVID, because we couldn't really record, it got complicated. We started getting the videos pre-recorded, mm-hmm. but we would do a live Q&A at the end. Mm-hmm. So they would join remotely from home, a bit like what we're doing now with the podcast. And we'd do that. But what was really interesting is they join early. So what was great is everyone was watching this person talking. They were asking questions, but the person who was doing the talk was in the chat with them and was answering their chat as their talk was going. Absolutely. And it was so good. It will be. And that's, it's just, we've just got to really change from, oh, this is the way I was and I was growing up and we have chalkboards and everyone sat in rows to, yes, well done, but look at the damage that's also caused to actually what is best. Not is what we've always done, what is best. And the fact that the moment you leave school, everything you do, unless you are fully a landscape gardener, plumber, builder, generally everything you do is going to involve tech. But even if you're doing all of them, it generally involves tech more than you realise. Totally. Totally. They have to know how to use it's it. It's integrated into our lives now and it's not yet integrated into our schools. And there no. are so many positive opportunities to meet the needs of individual children using technology that we are completely missing. We are. And all of this started with compassion and it's being compassionate about the benefits of IT rather than just saying no. It's the same thing. It is. Don't look at it. Yes. Children can misuse tech. 
And I've seen some of the discussions on social media. And one of these, one teacher's reason for not using tech in school is because, well, I can't put down my social media. I spend six hours a day on social media. So what, I was like, cool. So there's, we have an issue. And no one's taught you how to use it properly. There is ways of drawing yourself off social media. There is actually setting up some rules of good practices and being aware of how much you're using it. That's what we should be teaching our children so they use it properly. Yes. And actually, I would argue that when I was at school, we had blackboards and chalkboards and we managed to abuse that. There was one particular teacher who had an allergy to chalk and wore gloves so that he didn't have a problem. And we managed to fill the gloves with chalk powder. So children will abuse whatever you give them. They will. They they most definitely will. That's their job. but yeah, and that's the thing is they will abuse, but it's the understanding the consequences. Lot is whole education thing around that, which that whole connection thing on that project. That's what that's about. Yes. Yeah. Is you can't just go here's a phone, use it. No. Yeah. In the same way, you couldn't just give a teacher Teams and tell them to use it, even though that's what we all did. It was it, you, you, there's how to use it and there's how to survive with it, but there's how to use it well is two different things. It is for sure. Now, we have meandered all over the place. We have indeed. Didn't think we'd be talking that much. But no, so empathy, I'm going to say empathy is something where you have walked their path or you have a very good experience or understanding of what they've done because you've been through something very similar. Yeah, so you might have had a relative with cancer, someone else with cancer, you're there, yeah? Or another serious thing, you're going, wow, when I had that, you're there, yeah? There are things like that as a parent, I instantly got that empathy of every other parent. I got what you're going through. I've been there. I get it. Not everyone will have the experiences you have. And that is where that compassion comes in. As you said, it's not empathy. It's that compassion. It's like, I've not walked your path. I have no idea what you're going through, but I get it is by the look on your face and the way you are. I get it's tough and I am trying to help. Yes. And the, um, the science indicates that if you dislike someone or something, a team or an individual it's almost twice as difficult to show empathy for them um so compassion is the thing that we all need to be focusing on definitely definitely so thank you for coming on the show today really enjoyed the conversation on meanders which as they always do i bet you if someone's cross-referenced all the stuff i rant about in these podcasts you'd get a really interesting picture of me (laughs) (laughs) So as always, I've you've given me some links of so sharing them and your contact details, and you'll find those wherever you listen to the podcast in the show notes, or you can find them on the website, which is www.thesendcast.com. So as always, thank you for listening. Please do tell everyone about the podcast, share it on all the social medias, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You'll find us as The Sendcast. So please let everyone know how good the podcast is and share it with others. And as always, if you are struggling to show progress, if over, your assessment process is too complicated, it takes too long, or you want to see what's available from us, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small sets of progress to people's SEND. And if you're a school in England still confused by the engagement model, not sure about the pre-key stage or anything else, or you're a school in Wales and you've got the new curriculum for Wales and trying to work out how to show assessment for your people your ALN pupils get in contact you can also find out about our online courses our training 
read our blog or watch our webinars. It's all on the B Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes as well. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye, everyone. Bye.